history of debates. <laughs> Mini Mike had the worst show ever. Can't do what I do, folks. <laughs> and Trump is an expert in debating, as we know. I mean, he really is, in a way. His rhetorical style is hard to combat because he's just so good on his feet with the insults and, and like letting shit roll off his back. His his debates with Hillary really were some of the best entertainment I've seen on live television, to be honest. <laughs> the man is a master. He really is of, <laughs> of uh, manipulating the media, anyway. Uh, Hillary herself is entertaining. I find Hillary to be very entertaining, just because she's so cringe. But Bloomberg has zero charm, zero charisma. Like no. nothing. He's no. not even he's he's not even really cringy. Like he's paying a lot of cringe people money to promote him as cringe, but it just reads as sad. Yeah. Well, so he's probably going to win Nevada, right, Sanders? <laughs> I should say Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, Sanders. Yeah, it looks like he's going not only win Nevada, but uh, you know. It's weird to call him Sanders. Uh, yes, I'm voting for Sanders. <laughs> I'll have the Sanders. I'll have the Sanders for a vote. I wish he were a colonel. He probably would. I mean, he would definitely win if he would just if he would just run as Colonel Sanders. Well, so <laughs> you're right. You're probably right. <laughs> He needs to go be a, get a get a colonel badge somehow. He could become a Kentucky colonel very easily. Um, y'all want to hear what David Brooks has been saying about Bernie? Who's that? David Brooks is the New York Times <sighs> editorial writer. Boring. Who is probably best known for. Um, marrying his uh, <laughs> secretary, who's like thirty years younger than him, not his stepsister. <laughs> oh, that's where you were going with that. Now that would make him a little cooler, in my book. <laughs> um, let's see. So this is not. I'm sure that this will be covered by Chapo and other podcast but i just was reading it and i was just utterly astounded at the whole thing i just figured you two should hear it um this is david brooks writing in the new york, new york times why sanders will probably win the nomination so here's here's david's take on the whole thing let us in on david successful presidential candidates are myth makers they don't just tell a story. They tell a story that helps people make meaning out of the current moment, that divides people into heroes and villains, that names a central challenge and explains why they are the perfect person to meet it. In 2016, Donald Trump told a successful myth. The coastal elites are greedy, stupid people who have mismanaged the country, undermined our values, and changed the face of our society. This was not an original myth. It's been around since at least the populist revolts of the 1890s. But it's a powerful us-versus-them worldview, which resonates with a lot of people. Bernie Sanders is also telling a successful myth. The corporate and Wall Street elites 
are rapacious monsters who hoard the nation's wealth and oppress working families. Yeah, yeah, myth. <laughs> this is not an original myth, either. It's been around since the class conflict agitators of 1848. It's also... Oh, that... <laughs> at least... Otherwise known as Marx and the boys. <laughs> <laughs> It is also a very compelling us-versus-them worldview that resonates with a lot of people. When you're inside the Sanders myth, you see the world through the Bernie's lens. For example, if you look at Mike Bloomberg through a certain lens, you see a successful entrepreneur who took his management skills into public service and then started giving his wealth away to reduce gun violence and climate change. (laughs) Okay. If, on the other hand, you look at Bloomberg through the Bernie lens, you see a rapacious billionaire who amassed amassed a gross amount of wealth, who became an authoritarian mayor and targeted young black men and then tried to buy his way to power. Same person through different lenses. (laughs) David really hasn't learned anything about disqualifying behavior, has he? Like... Like, like I'm not even saying Bloomberg is com- actually combating climate change or any of that stuff. What I am saying, though, is that if he healed lepers and the blind and did that other shit, that first shit don't matter. <laughs> Nothing, yes, it cannot be stated enough. Nothing Mike Bloomberg could do with the rest of his life could make up for the misery and pain he has caused so far. There is literally nothing. It really cannot. Nothing. It really cannot. No. If he gave away all of his wealth and, as you said, Tom, went to living a life of a a pauper healing the rich and lame, or the poor uh, poor and lame, it, it would not matter. Give away every penny you have and throw yourself off the Empire State Building. We'll still laugh. We still have you. <laughs> we still have the fuck about you. That's what Tom Steyer and them need to recognize, too, is that, like, there's nothing you can do at this point. The damage is done once you let your hubris allow you to exploit labor to the point where you've hoarded all these resources while you walk streets and there are people begging. Yeah. yeah. And it's... Which- Let me me just say that this is honestly a a very rare, um, like fucking diamond in the rough. One of the one of the few fucking bright spots in this election at all is that people truly are not forgiving this shit anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like we have we have enough of our own communication channels now that we know who is making our lives so miserable. We know. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good point, Tony. I was thinking about that this morning that, like, the mask has really slipped, but, like, more and more every day. It's like when I was thinking about that stock market thing this morning, I tweeted about it. I was like, it is fucking crazy that these people rigged this system to the point that they created this, like, gambling apparatus that has us given significant portions of our income over the entirety of our working lives to them in advance to let them do what they will with it to make more money, acquire more wealth, while in retirement they give us a pittance of that. About 8% is what any personal finance person will tell you. You know what I mean? Right. And then you retire and you're like, oh, you're a millionaire now. And then it's like, you know, but like I <laughs> I gave so much of myself to make you billions and then I actually 
when I can't really even enjoy this well, if I'm getting ready to die in 10, 15 years, whatever it is, now I'm finally not even well, really set set, you know? Something I really want to make clear, though, is that, look, Bloomberg is a bad person. He's an objectively bad person, not just because of his uh, hoarding of wealth, but because of you know, the bad things he's said and done and 64 sexual assault harassment or allegations or whatever. Like, he's a bad person. Uh, pimping his daughter off to businessmen yeah. when she was a teenager. But even if you, even those things aside, let's say he was a guy like Tom Steyer, like who, who you know, uh, who appears to be not that kind of person. Who appears to be a, a different rich kind, of, a different kind of rich person? Uh, something I I want to make clear though is that like wealth is not just like poverty is not a failure of morality. Like this is, and this is I I kind of have problems sometimes with the Bernie campaign the way they use the word greed. Like the billionaire is just as locked into the system as we are, and. If you miss that, if you focus on the moral failings that they are bad people or that they, uh, uh, you know, that they're greedy or whatever, you can miss that the system itself is what needs to be overturned. I'm not saying, however, that they don't deserve what they have coming because they definitely do. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with that. It's like we were talking about capitalism is, is amoral. I mean, it just, it just does what it does. And that is honestly the root of all evil is, is just, you know, doing the, doing the job, you know, the job is the job. The and job, the is, job, the job. Is, is that people have to lose in order for this to succeed. And to succeed means that a handful of people get rapaciously wealthy and a lot of others, many, 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 many more others are immiserated. And that that is the thing, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because I'm sure people will listen to this and say, you know, like, Bloomberg isn't bad because of um, all the bad things he's done. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like, <laughs> well, I don't even know what I'm fucking saying. It's, it's almost, though, like it doesn't matter. It ultimately does not matter. Like I said, the billionaire is locked into the same system that we are at the end of the day. So, like, that's why, like, appeals to greed and immorality don't really matter that much. They, they do help if we're trying to, like, start a riot or something. That would be good. <laughs> if we're trying to put Bloomberg in the sausage maker, yes, that's a, that's a fact. <laughs> but I know, what you're, I know what you're saying is that that the accumulation of billions, even if you're a morally upright person and you give to the poor and all this kind of stuff, if you have acquired the wealth and you've plugged into that system, it's not necessarily – about morality at that point, it is, is that you've leveraged that for your own gain. And that you, even if you're the best person in the world, you're tacitly supporting the immiseration of a lot of other people. And therein lies the sin. Well, yes, and because the, the name of the game is capitalism, and that means that we're just allocating resources. So even if Bloomberg were to give away all of his riches and just disappear, somebody else would step in and do it. Because that's how we allocate resources in 2020. This absurdly ginned-up uh, gambling system called capitalism. <laughs> it's completely irrational and nonsensical, but but all of this would be considered the Bernie lens, according to David Brooks. Uh-huh. Um you know what? I 
actually kind of early on, uh, like really until this week, I thought it was a joke that Bloomberg was paying people to do everything that volunteers are doing for Bernie. <laughs> like knock on doors and make calls and like just do bizarre shit. But he really is just paying people to carry Bloomberg bags around New York and whatever the fuck. I don't know. I don't even know at all. Yeah. And paying people to endorse him. As far as I can see, the only Bloomberg supporters are uh, celebrities that have probably been paid half a million dollars to send a tweet. Anybody that had money in New York in the 90s except for Donald Trump. <laughs> and whatever poor bastard needed a $300 gig to go around canvassing for him. <laughs> who's probably still not going to vote for him. You know, it's interesting, though, like, if you're taking Bloomberg money, if Bloomberg is paying you to support him, I, you know, I can't really knock that. Get paid. Get paid, my man. But if you're out here, one of these people that is uh, still standing for him after he's, you know, just been revealed to have used prison laborers in Oklahoma to make calls on his behalf, I don't really know what else to tell you. It's like earlier you said he's finished. I don't think so. I think that there are batshit insane psychopaths out there that like like that. That you know what I mean. That see some sort of determination and vision in that. <laughs> no, absolutely, there are. But I want to give a warning to those people too. I mean, it's not just the billionaires that are a morally plugging into the system and benefiting from it. We also got to talk about a certain type of liberal that. That pines for that that sort of familiarity that a Bloomberg or something does, and then in that case, it's just tacitly supporting the you know perpetuation of that miser that miser immiseration. Right. And uh, that's that's really the greatest travesty, honestly, because um, they they don't stand to gain at all in any way, shape, or form. Like you know the Bloombergs of the world do, but they sort of create the conditions for them to exist still. Well, it's they're making their choice between Bernie and you know barbarianism. And oh, barbarianism! That's what I was about to say. It's bar- Bernie or goddamn bust. Um, Truly. So uh, David Brooks writes here. My takeaway from Wednesday's hellaciously entertaining Democratic debate is that Sanders is the only candidate telling a successful myth. Bloomberg, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar all make good arguments, but they haven't organized their worldview into simple, compelling myth. You may, oh my God. <laughs> you may look at them, but you don't see the world through their eyes. Where this goes after this, guys, I cannot... I, I don't even know how to explain this to you. Like, you don't have the proper armor to go I, there. I don't have the proper rhetorical tools or armor to, exp- to express it. It's incredible. So You know, any time I think that, we, that we've really dried up, we don't have anything else to talk about on this podcast, it is true the New York Times will never fail us. <laughs> we exist. Some... In large part because the New York Times exists. Exactly. Truly. Um, so he... They have fucked us so many ways, so many times, <laughs> and it never ends. Um, Elizabeth Warren inhabits a myth without expressing it clearly. It just happens to be Sanders' myth. I thought her performance Wednesday... I thought that was going a different way. I thought it was going to be... I was going to say, well, because she's a woman. <laughs> 
I thought her performance Wednesday evening was tactically brilliant and strategically catastrophic. Her attack on Bloomberg was totally through the Bernie lens. Her attacks on Buttigieg and Klobuchar were also through the Bernie lens. Through that lens, a bigger spending proposal is always better than a less big spending proposal. I don't know what he's talking about. Warren was a devastating... This man makes half a million dollars a year, probably. (laughs) Dude, uh, Warren was a devastatingly effective surrogate for Sanders, but she reinforced his worldview rather than establishing one of her own. Over the past five years, Sanders and his fellow progressives have induced large parts of the Democratic Party to see through the Bernie lens. You can tell because every candidate on that stage has the categories and mental equipment to carve up a billionaire like Bloomberg. None have the categories or mental equipment to take down a socialist like Sanders. Sanders goes untouched in these debates because the other candidates don't have a mythic platform from which to launch an attack. Saying his plans cost too much is a pathetic response to a successful myth. And he's true. I mean, he's, he's, he's right here. They don't have shit on Bernie in terms of the story that he's telling. The story that he's telling is a compelling one, and it's true. And he's been saying it for 60 years. Right. But, I mean, there really isn't. Is there another elected official like this? No. No, that's why... That's why a career. there's not, and that's why I must plead with all of my friends who are still abstaining or or even skeptical of this that like this is quite literally a once in a lifetime thing. <laughs> like, it really is. I mean, the system's got to go either way. It's, it's not like we are, you know. It's not like we're joking, but he knows that, and he's been saying it for years. And we may not have exactly the same idea of how it's going to go down, but it's going down. Yeah, it's such a dog shit country that this is the only opportunity we've had in any. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, how that all sorts out in an, a Sanders administration is impossible to know, and I'm not. Uh, I'm not smart enough to. I mean, me, I mean, either. I'm certainly not smart enough, but <clears throat> I, I, the bare bones of it to me at this point is I think that a Sanders presidency means less death overall well <laughs> at, at, least, at least on our side <laughs> yeah i mean yeah due to due to class war like less death due to class warfare and climate yeah you know it's just like there right. are a few things here so this Unless is your name's tom perez my, my money's still on him getting dismembered somehow <laughs> <laughs> so this is the part of the article that just goes absolutely haywire (laughs) that just goes off the rails um and several times over the course of the last two or three years i've evoked this image of the street protesting radical who supports robert mueller and impeachment and Hillary Clinton. Like, and I see them, and I've seen them over time become more and more disillusioned and disaffected with every aspect of America and the political process. You know what I'm talking about? Like, these people are going to be who we were four years ago. They're going. Is this the Rad Lib? This is the Rad Lib, it, like, fully realized. You know, 
they, I knew Rad Lips. They are now the protest voters and abstentionists. Whereas, like, five or six years ago, we were the protest voters and abstentionists. They are now becoming that person. And Are you saying we're the establishment? <laughs> I'm saying that... I'm saying that people will use whatever means available to them to further, and, and not people, classes. Classes will use whatever means available to them to further their own agenda, and that's what we are doing with Bernie. And they don't see an avenue anymore, so they might be bombing post offices in a few years. <laughs> so the Rad Lib, the Robert Mueller Rad Lib, is going weather underground on this, is your hypothesis. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you saw this, but today someone put a brick through the window of the Bernie office in somewhere in Nevada. And no, it was in Seattle. Oh, Seattle, okay. It was yeah. probably Howard Schultz. It really probably was. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there are, any, are there any Schultz liberals still out there? <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, it probably was not a white nationalist or a right winger. It probably was a straight up, like, Buttigieg supporter or <laughs> a Bloomberg supporter. Bernie, you fucking white bastard, you old white bastard. Here's what, here's what I wonder, though. I don't disagree with you, but I'm just thinking about what a hollow existence it would be to throw bricks through Bernie campaign field offices as a rad lib. When you don't believe in anything. <laughs> like, what are you fighting for? At least what we're fighting for is, like, you know, people to be able to go to the doctor and to not, you know, become bankrupt if they do go to the doctor and for the student loan debt to be alleviated, for people to have, like, a puncher's chance at a dignified existence in this fucking country. But, like, what does the Rad Lib fight for? Donald Trump's impeachment? Like, Yeah, truly. That is, that is what it is, Tom. They fight... For the norms. They fight for the Constitution. They fight for the pageantry of voting. All of that shit. That, it's worked for them. Yes, because it's worked for them. And, and two, I think you're right about that too. I think the reason they do that is because these people have equated politics with entertainment. You know, it's a form of entertainment to them. In the same way we would watch wrestling or whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, these are the people that have strong opinions about Kamala Harris and know the finer points of Michael Bennett's career. <laughs> I don't know who that is, and I will never look it up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, so this is, the, this is the money shot. And he tweeted this. He tweeted something along these lines the other day, but he put it into a, an editorial version, into an op-ed. But this is it. I've spent much of this election season away from the campaign rallies and interviewing voters embedded in their normal lives. This week, for example, I was in Compton and Watts in and around Los Angeles. The reality I counter, encounter every day has little to do with the us versus them stories Trump and Sanders are telling. Listen to his diagnosis of the system and why everything is the way it is. Cause I, I want to I say one thing before you go there. Okay, this is a guy that took his hillbilly friend to get a stromboli and then wanted to pat on the back for introducing him to a little culture. Yes, stromboli. this is the same person. Everywhere I go, I see systems that are struggling. So picture David Brooks walking around Compton and Watts just being like, man, man, this is 
this is real messed up. Like, what could caused all that? Why are these people going for Bernie? I don't understand. So this is his diagnosis of the system. <laughs> Everywhere I go, I see systems that are struggling. School systems, housing systems, family structures, neighborhoods trying to bridge diversity. These problems aren't caused by some group of intentionally evil people. They exist because living through a time of economic, technological, demographic, and cultural transition is hard. Creating <laughs> social trust across diversity is hard. <laughs> Everywhere I go, I see a process that is the opposite of group versus group war. It is gathering. It is people becoming extra active on the local level to repair the systems in their lives. I see a great yearning for solidarity and eagerness to come together and make practical change. These gathering efforts are hampered by rippers at the national level who stoke rage and fear and tell friend enemy stories. These efforts are hampered by men like Sanders and Trump who have never worked within a party or subordinated themselves to a team. Men who are one trick ponies. All they do is stand on a podium and bellow in the gathering myth. The heroes have traits, uh, have traits Trump and Sanders lack. Open-mindedness, flexibility, listening skills, team-building skills, and basic human warmth. Okay, h- how does Bernie not have open-mindedness, basic flexibility? Basic human <laughs> warmth. These, like, it should tell you something that David Brooks literally sees Bernie as the Grim Reaper. A strong man. <laughs> In this saga, leaders are measured by their ability to expand relationships, not wall them off. The gathering myth is an alternative myth, one that has the advantage of being true. <laughs> I just want to I just want to run this back real quick. These problems aren't caused by some group of intentionally evil people. They exist because living through a time of economic, technological, demographic and cultural transition is hard. Oh, David, why why is why are things transitioning, David? Why is there an economic transition? Why is there a technological transition, David? <laughs> Absolute fucking maniac. <laughs> oh, and that's the thing that comes princess. An editor didn't say, mm, nah, you know, it might be a little bit of an oversimplification. Oh, David, why are social relationships fraying, David? Why, why, why is everything unraveling? Why is this happening? I just can't even fucking fathom looking at the world and seeing the problems being. You see the changes, and that's what the the issue is you're like oh things are bad because things are changing man <laughs> that's um god damn dude i'm just imagining david brooks like getting some like paid actors to pretend to be crips or something and then like <laughs> doing like a video series where he goes out there and, and they all just say to him david why is this all happening <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, big blue face. This is why this is happening. <laughs> yeah, Jesus fucking Christ. David, why, is, why are people taking so many drugs? They die. I don't get it, David. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, man. Well, anyways, um, he is right, though, in the sense that, like, Bernie is telling a compelling story. And the... And, yeah. 
Yes. These people don't have a myth or a story or anything anymore. David Brooks and the Hillary Clintons and Buttigieg's of the world. They're, they've got nothing. <laughs> well, their only thing is a return to normalcy, but the return to normalcy is... I mean, it's just the immiseration, the continued immiseration of people. Like, what people don't understand in the era of Trump is that with some rough edges, we still have about the, uh, more or less the same thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? We have, like, that's it. You're right. Like, like 9 11 is looked at as this, like, sort of watershed moment of change in this country. But did your life change that much other than just the airport being a bigger bitch? Our I lives mean, were substantially more altered by everything that happened within the eight years George Bush was president than, I mean, Trump has not even come close. Not even close. We launched two wars, expanded the police and surveillance state, and crashed the economy in eight years. (laughs) Accelerationism at its finest. Exactly. Like, you want to talk about accelerationism, they fucking did it. And now they sit around bitching and moaning about these strong men who come telling stories. It's like... (laughs) Was David Brooks a shill for the Iraq War? Oh, absolutely. Is he a Republican? David Brooks is like a centrist, like extraordinaire. David Brooks is the centrist. I don't know what he's registered as, as probably a Republican, but... I just have to call those people Republicans anymore. Like, you can't be a centrist. I mean, I, get, I don't even know. It's just, it feels like the word Democrat's useless anymore. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> he uh, calls himself a moderate conservative... Um, one of his callings is to re- represent a certain moderate Republican Whig philo- political philosophy. Whig? <laughs> he literally used the word Whig. Just, could you imagine David Brooks walking around Compton trying to, like, sell people on the Whig political philosophy? On the return of the Whig party. <laughs> that's like, that's like just some, like, hipster shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. So I, my values actually are more in line with the Whig Party that disbanded in 1857, whatever they disbanded. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, fucking A. Um, but, I mean, but he is correct in that one sentence. Like, yeah, all of this is not the result of intentionally evil people. Again, none of these people see what they do as evil. Like, none of, none of them... Really? I'm okay. Maybe maybe a few of them, yeah. But collectively, on the on the whole, like you go to the Aspirin uh, Ideas Festival or whatever the fuck or Davos, and they see themselves as the progressive engine of history. They see themselves in what the IMF does and what the World Bank does as lifting people out of uh, you know poverty and introducing technological inter- innovation to people's lives, and in so doing bringing them out of, yeah, immiseration and poverty. I don't think any of them see what they're doing as, as intentionally evil or wrong. And that's what I was getting at earlier. It's like they are just as locked into this system as we are. And that's what's so scary about them talking about Mars. It's like they are now, for the first time, and I don't know if Mark's ever anticipated this, they are now, now talking about... <laughs> <laughs> they are now talking about exiting the system. They may have found a way to transcend and finally exit this primordial battle that's been going on for millennia, um, which is a pretty scary thought. 
But I don't know. It, it, that may also be impossible. I'm not entirely sure. But but that's what they mean when they talk about Mars and and space colonies and all this. They're talking. They're not talking about fleeing a warming world. They're talking about exiting a system that they know they're locked into with us. Jeez. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, just even anytime I even start to think about the colonization of other planets, it's just more. It, it's like I'm afraid I will never get out of bed again. I can't even entertain it for a moment. <laughs> um, I know this won't be. We can probably cut this out because I know this won't be relevant when we release this episode. But the numbers I see right now is that Sanders has 68 percent of the vote. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> it's a bloodbath. My man is piling up skins. <laughs> Maybe that was in one place? I'm so confused. No, now they've switched to they won't even show that image long. Now they've switched to age forty five plus, which is more which is uh burning at twenty one percent and Biden at twenty percent. They won't even show it very long that he is <laughs> That it's truly a bloodbath. Yeah, now they're showing moderate voters. What's so fucked? Did Joe even go to Nevada? <laughs> Is Joe in Nevada? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. I still think it's hilarious. You see all this polling and Joe Biden is still in second place and my guy has not finished above fourth in any primary. No. No. Like with national voters. It's so weird. I don't know why. Okay, that's. Hold on a second. While we're on Joe Biden, before we get too far from that, did y'all see where he claims to have been arrested in South Africa (laughs) during apartheid? (laughs) What? (laughs) Did you see this? No. (laughs) Joe Biden swears up and down that he was arrested in South Africa. It's making the rounds. I didn't really read much into it. Just the headline just made me erupt. Arrested for what? I don't know. I guess some sort of... He was protesting apartheid with Nelson Mandela. <laughs> They've sat around at Biden HQ, saw that famous picture of Bernie being drug away by the cops. And Joe's <laughs> had to create some sort of origin myth uh-huh. that sort of neutralizes that and adds to his mystique as this civil rights guy. An origin myth. They can't. We have their origins on video. We have Elizabeth Warren speaking to the Federalist fucking society, whatever the fuck it is. We have Biden talking about busted. Yeah. Yeah. Really ready to free Social Security. No fucks to give about anybody. Shut the government down. These people are fucking sick. We are. We are about to enter into the realm. As Bernie, as it becomes more and more clear, Bernie will be the nominee. Um, well, he will be the elected. He will be. He will. He will have the most votes. We'll see what happens in Milwaukee. Very true. Very true. Um, yeah, they could pull some kind of coup. But before we before we get too far away from that, I just want to point out just for the 18th millionth time what kind of a brain disease liberalism truly is. <laughs> so, like. You know, we got Biden out here saying that he was on the front lines of the apartheid fight. We just got (laughs) all these just crazy myths when, like, the reality is at some point, most of those people were just the most vile people. And I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day, and she was saying that this at this meeting that they had that this person who was like this sort of progressive leader in a certain movement or whatever, 
said to within earshot of this person they brought around as a person of color, young woman of color, and said that something to the effect of that um, the reason we have a lot of the problems we have in this country there is because blacks and Muslims are spreading their seed around. Oh, my God. And I say that, one, obviously to point out the obvious racism, but two, just to point out what kind of craven freaks these people are. Like, who the fuck says the words spread their seed around with about a hint of irony? <laughs> I mean, it's like, the, it's like, oh, just, just I, somebody at this meeting, I don't want to, you know. Dox Well, I don't want to dox the person who told me this. But. Oh. But. But. It's astonishing to me how many liberals have, I mean, just like, you know, Andrew Sullivan or something at the New Republic or any people that like at, cer- at a certain point caped for like the most vile philosophies on earth. So it's like, why do we look at like Joe Biden's past or Kamala Harris's past as a cop or all this stuff and expect any different out of them? Because usually every liberal that didn't grow up from liberalism to become part of the left is like a craven fucking lunatic freak that is like just as prone to any fucking conspiracy theory as the like the nuttiest batshit Facebook conservative. Yeah. And honestly, they say crazy things like spread your seat around talking about a future uh, like that white supremacy will weed itself out as the races blend and there's going to be some future where... You know, racism doesn't exist because we're all blended. Well, you like heard this... Amber talk about that earlier in Silicon Valley, what the woman said. Or you said that earlier. Yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, this is woman in Silicon Valley. And if you had dug deeper with this bitch who said, my son, her white son just would probably, you know, not even end up with a white woman. One, she's clearly not ready that he could end up with a non-white man. And two, she is probably digging deep and talking about, like, I mean, there's still just like, I, I just would love to imagine who her husband works with in Silicon Valley. Actually her, she works in Silicon Valley too. Who they work with that they are just like hoping their son will date their kids. Like how fuck, what fucking freak shows? These people are eugenicists. It's like, it's like the Juneteenth episode of Atlanta, but like yeah. going to Silicon Valley. Oh yeah. It's what? weird. Oh, well, I'd say it's eerily similar. All these people, all these people. I think what I mean. I'm not going to try to even diagnose the sort of uh, pathology that comes with that because I just don't know. But all these people secretly believe, particularly affluent whites, secretly believe like John Bircher, like shit, like the coming race war, and that kind of shit. That collecting like friends of color shit is just part and parcel of trying to stave that off. I mean, you see this with like people we know particularly in foundation land that do that shit. Yeah. I think that the biggest, obviously like Bernie, um, you know, preaching what he's preaching and raising class consciousness is um, like probably his biggest contribution to recent politics. But honestly, it would not surprise me if what you start to see in the next few years is a fundamental shift where in all of these people that are to the right of Warren, um, anyone to the right of Warren and even maybe the sort of like Warren adjacent people themselves start to peel off and become more openly conservative and right wing. Because I think that what 
Bernie has done is start to reveal the contradictions at this sort of that lies at the sort of heart of the Democratic Party and of liberal politics. And so like politics are starting to align more and more with class interests. Whereas like before it's just been a sort of like hobbled together coalition of different interest groups. Now I feel like politics is starting to align closer to a little bit yeah, I don't know, towards class interests. I don't know. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. And that's when <clears throat> I think what you're seeing too with also too with some of that race shit, just as a response to what you were just saying, Terrence, is that like the last thing, the last vestige of their interpretation of identity politics is like getting morphed into like weird racist eugenicist shit because it's becoming more and more incoherent because there's no class component to it either. Right. And so what you're seeing is these people, the right were drift, but with that, what's coming is like their racial politics are becoming weirder and weirder and weirder. And as a result, by extension, more and more disgusting. Well, yeah, because they don't understand race. Again, this is the thing. It's like because we've like sectioned race off into the sort of nonprofits and Democratic Party elite, we don't ever talk about what it is anymore. I mean, you look at like what the leftists were talking about in the 60s and 70s. They were asking, like, what is race? Where, I mean, you know, how is it used? How do we envision a society where we break it down? No one ever, we don't talk about that anymore, the origin of what it is. And uh, because we've ceded that, like I said, to the Democratic Party elite and the nonprofits. And that in turn has meant that we've ceded the entire thing to the right. And so the only people that really talk about it anymore in its class dimension is the right wing. So you, it's like you get these right wing fanatics who talk about it in terms of class. And then you've got this sort of like progr vaguely progressive people who just talk about it like it's just as a given. And then the far left, who we haven't done a good enough job of injecting that into our, I don't know, discourse. It's like, I don't know, like Noel Ignatiev, who just died. You know what I mean? Like, I think he's a perfect example of what it looks like to talk about race in terms of class. Or, as Stuart Hall said, uh, race as the lived modality of class. And we we just, again, we just don't talk about that anymore. And so, as a result, you're getting these very warped and twisted interpretations of it. It's pretty scary, honestly. I don't know. No, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. <clears throat> They're going to be pulling at straws to try to cancel us all before we can kill them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's literally what that Bloomberg ad was. Yeah. That Bloomberg ad was literally about trying to cancel a few dozen Twitter users. <laughs> yeah, really. For <laughs> calling him names like oligarch, plutocrat, <laughs> the, cl the classic slurs. Jesse Montgomery. I saw him tweet that. The classic slurs. God damn. Uh, well, um, I've got another thing to read here. It's a little bit more fun. Um, mostly because of the tone of it is fun. Yes, yeah. a little for us. A little treat for us. It's a little fun. Um, it's. Mm. I mean, it's dark, of course. Um, <laughs> wouldn't be fun if it wasn't dark. Uh, but this is this comes by way of us. Uh, by way of NPR Morning Edition. Oh God. Um, enjoy the extra day off. More bosses give four day work week a try. And um, and so the tone in the way this is written is fucking hilarious because it's written like they've like uh, 
like someone was laboring in a lab like Einstein Einstein and they were like oh guys I fucking got it we can improve and we can improve profitability and work productivity if we cut a day out of the work week <laughs> and like everybody is treating this except american capitalists who are the most ruthless capitalists in the world probably everybody is treating this like it's an innovation and it's the way it's written is funny so companies around the world are embracing what might seem like a radical idea a four-day work week <laughs> Uh, the concept is gaining ground in places as varied as New Zealand and Russia, and it's making inroads among some American companies. Employers are seeing surprising benefits, including higher sales and profits. The idea of a four-day work week might sound crazy, especially in America, where the number of hours worked has been climbing and where cell phones and email remind us of our jobs 24-7. But in some places, the four-day concept is taking off like a viral meme. Oh, my God. <laughs> Last month, a Washington state senator introduced a bill to reduce the standard work week to 32 hours. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev is backing a parliamentary pro proposal to shift to a four-day week. Politicians in Britain and Finland are considering something similar. In the U.S., Shake Shack started testing the idea a year and a half ago. Check this out. The burger chain shortened managers' work weeks to four days at some stores and found that recruitment spiked, especially among women. Shake Shack's president, Tara Camonti, says the staff loved the perk. Being able to take their kids to school a day a week or one day less of having to pay for daycare, for example. Look at them. They love it. <laughs> like, no fucking shit, Tara. <laughs> So the company recently yes, truly. So the company recently expanded its trial to a third of its 164 U.S. stores, offering that that benefit required Shake Shack to find time savings elsewhere. So it switched to computer software to track supplies of ground beef, for example. It was a way to increase infle increase flexibility, Kamanti says of the shorter week. Corporate environments have had flexible work policies for a while now. That's not so easy to do in the restaurant business. Um, hundreds, if not thousands, of other companies are also adopting or testing the four-day week. Last summer, Microsoft's trial in Japan led to a 40% improvement in productivity, measured as sales per employee. Much of this is thanks to Andrew Barnes, who is the uh, Albert Einstein of um, the four-day work week, apparently. He is an archaeologist by training who never intended to become a global evangel evangelist. <laughs> this was not a journey I expected to be on, he says. Barnes is CEO <laughs> Barnes is CEO of per Perpetual Guardian, New Zealand's largest estate planning company. He spent much of his career believing long hours were better for business. <laughs> But he was also disturbed by the toll it took on employees and their families, particularly disturbed. <laughs> particularly when it came to mental health. So two years, he used Perpetual Guardian, which is a really hilarious dystopic name for a company, Perpetual Guardian. Yeah, really. <laughs> is it a security firm? Estate, an estate planning, an estate, estate planning company. Um, use Perpetual Guardian and its 240 workers as guinea pigs, partnering with academic researchers in Auckland 
to monitor and track the effects of working only four days a week. It's like, I like the notion of, like, scientists coming in and, like, putting, like, suction cups with wires attached to them to, like, workers' heads and chests, like, having them run on a treadmill, like, we're studying how the four-day week is (laughs) affecting them. (laughs) Court to this is that people are not productive for every hour, every minute of the day that they're in the office, Barnes says, which means there was a lot of distraction and wasted time that could be cut. Simply slashing the number and duration of meetings saved huge amounts of time. Also, he did away with open floor office plans and saw workers spending far less time on social media. All this, he says, made it easier to focus more deeply on the work. Remarkably, workers got more done while working fewer hours. Sales and profits grew. Employees spent less time commuting, and they were happier. Um, The company didn't police how workers spent their time, but if performance slipped, the firm could revert back to the full week schedule. Barnes oh says that I always have to dangle that out carrot up there. But like he says, Barnes says that alone motivated workers. Uh-huh. Their perpetual guardian study went viral and things went haywire for Barnes. Employers, including big multinationals, started calling seeking advice. Big big multinationals. <laughs> it's like total recall. Yes. What's going on in there? Someone uh, trying to break out of a window? Is it that bad? Um, Let's see. Yeah, I'm trying to escape this window. (laughs) (laughs) To date, most of that interest has not come from American employers. Um, Peter Capelli, a professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Imagine being a professor of management. (laughs) Says that's because the concept... Oh, God, no. (laughs) says this is because the concept runs counter to American notions of work and capitalism. Unions are less powerful and workers have less political sway than in other countries, he says. Um, so American companies answer to shareholders who tend to prioritize profit over worker benefits. Blah, 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 blah. Um, let's see. Uh, this, let's see. Natalie Nagil, co-founder and CEO of Wildbit, has heard from other leaders who say it didn't work for them. She says it fails when employees aren't motivated and where managers don't trust employees. <laughs> just, Guilty. Well, I just think it's funny that, like, in America, like, America is so funny to me because, like, Europe, you know, tried the whole social democracy thing and, like, they had, like, corporations be, like, a little nicer and the banks be a little nicer. But, like, America from, like, day one has always just been, like, you're going to fucking work. <laughs> That's your life. That's you're your gonna job. You're going to hate it. You're, you're going to love fucking... it. Exactly. You're going to love it or hate it. <laughs> and never, even... never any trust to be built. What were you going to say? Truly the worst country. Truly. <laughs> Oh, fuck. Um, Let's see. Michael Parlow started working a four-day week about a month ago. It was a perk of his new job as a budget analyst in Westminster, Colorado. He works 10 hours a day now, Monday through Thursday. (laughs) 
That's so he's working the same. Does. He's working exactly the same he's, amount of hours. He's working with his mom. It always is. My mom works four tens, and it's she's so- like, "Oh, I love having a three day work week, three day weekend." But her knees don't work anymore. Exactly. All those three days, she can't move. Like three I, days, she can't get out of her fucking chair. I opened this article thinking, like, "Oh, okay, like maybe capitalists have seen Bernie on the horizon, and they're like." Maybe we need to start instituting some reforms. Maybe productivity no. really can be in- increased by limiting workers to four work days and, and all this. But like, like even that modicum of optimism in my mind was misplaced because I opened the article and it's like, well, they're just working 10 hours a day now instead of eight. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's that, what it is. On that fifth day, they turn the thermostat down real low. They don't have to pay as much power. Bill. Exactly. <laughs> they're still saving some money. Well, and also they're getting exactly the same amount of productivity. It's like a, it's more of a hack than like a benefit. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's 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 like dangling some sort of benefit in front of them that's not actually a benefit. <laughs> Which are most so-called benefits to yep. go to a job. It's like you go, they, they tell you there's all these benefits and then you actually get signed on and you start filling out paperwork and you realize they only contribute to your 401k bullshit if you do or or it doesn't kick in after you, until you've been there for a year. Or, or there's 900 things you have to do, to, hoops you have to jump through to get in something. Yeah. Or... They just straight up forget to sign you up for the first year, which happens about 60% of the time at Apple Shop. <laughs> and you go to the doctor and you get a big fat bill and you go back to the office and you're like, oh, we forgot to sign you up. Sorry. Honestly, reading this just, again, like reinforces the idea I've had for a while that like American capitalists are so unprepared for what's coming. Like they think... This is doing workers a favor. They're like, oh, you know, like, this is good. Like, you know, we're going to institute some reforms. Like, maybe workers won't be so riled up all the time, pissed off. <laughs> we're going to give them some reforms. <laughs> You're right. That free, uh, as the article says, that frees Fridays up for life's many delightful chores, like visits to the DMV. Like, not a hint of irony in that fucking sentence. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Four we are here for nothing else but to work. <laughs> Seriously, because the next quote is that same guy who's now working 10 hours a day instead of eight. For instance, today we're going to go and get our license plates. But that also leaves time on the weekends for the weekend. It's like, like I cannot imagine anything more black-pilled than the last three lines of that article. <laughs> Just like, we're going to go get our license plate made. My life's not really any better, but like, fuck it. I got more time to do the other quotidian duties that also rob me of my money. <laughs> right, right. And it's not even the worker's fault. I mean, for feeling that way. It's like, we've just so internalized that this is the way that it's got to be. And like, they have so much power over our lives. As the article says, like, we don't even have, you know, robust union involvement or anything in America anymore. There's no like labor participation. And so it's like, and so it's like the capitalists just have free hand to do whatever the fuck they want. It's so cruel. <sighs> Anyways. We should be we should be happy. It's not worse, honestly. <laughs> that's what they're saying when they Yeah, that's yeah. what they're saying. And they're it, like, it, it, you look how good you have it, you smug bastards. <laughs> 
Oh, this has been Planet Money. Hi, I, I'm Clyde Rizdahl. This has been Planet Money. <laughs> God damn it. Well, um... You know what I think I want to start doing? I think I want to start applying for jobs at the New York Times. Yeah, do it. And and see if they'll like give me feedback about why they won't hire me. <laughs> yeah, they'll like tell me why. That'd be good dramatic reading. Uh, Mrs. Turner, we really like your CV looks great. Um, you, but unfortunately, your interview. Um, <laughs> you sound like a dumb cunt. <laughs> <laughs> For one, you have an accent. <laughs> We're going to need you to talk to some of our dialect coaches to get rid of that. Um. <laughs> We're going to actually need you just to be a subject in our stories, and that doesn't really pay anything. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if you go into this room and tell these guys everything that's ever happened to you, that'd be great. Right. Can we interview you? Study yeah. you? Jesus. I, I want to apply to be a podcaster for the New York Times. Oh, you could be on Mikey Bar- Barbaro's Barbaro's um, The Daily, my favorite New York Times podcast. How many goddamn podcasts are named The Daily? <laughs> There's like no, six of them. How many fucking coffee shops are named The Daily? Fucking get over it. I saw a coffee shop in Columbus, Ohio named Me Too. Oh my god! Uh, did that? Did that open before or after uh, 2015? <laughs> Who's the same? Well, Who knows? Mm. Well, I don't know when this episode is coming out. I guess if it's the main episode this week, then sorry for all the outdated references, everybody. Um, yeah, but we are trying to keep up. We've recorded this on the day of the Nevada caucus. Yeah, we we're all going to be traveling in the coming week, so. Um, so apologies for that, but um, if it is on the main feed, then go check out the Patreon, <clears throat> where you will get a, uh, I was about to say free episode, but it's literally not free. You literally <laughs> pay. Um, but for $5, you're going to get like 100 new episodes. I mean, it's a good deal. $5. It's incredibly good deal. $5 a month, um, you'll get a, a, an episode every Sunday, and then you got all those back episodes. I mean, I can't guarantee the quality of the first 30 premium episodes or so. They're probably not that great. But it isn't... Are the, are the takes outdated? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but still. As a cultural artifact, they are indeed very funny. Yeah, why not? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, We do have exciting travel coming up, though. I mean... uh. Tom is continuing his quest uh, for union bargaining, right, Tom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be doing that this week. Well, good luck, my man. So, yeah, yeah. If they it, try to give you a four-day work week, tell them no. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> unless it's an unless it's an eight-hour one. Well, I've always thought, honestly, you know how like. One of the big galvanizing movements of the uh, turn of the last century was the eight-hour workday. Like, I think that if we were going to revive something like that, um, I have a friend, Wilson, uh, who lives in New York, who's um, always advocated for the four-by-four, the four-day work week, the four-hour workday and the four-day work week. I mean, Hell yeah. 
I feel like you can get most of your fucking work done. God damn. That would that's, be... that's probably the most productivity you get out of anybody any goddamn way. Exactly. Most people spend their time on Facebook. And... <laughs> or just mi- uh, misery because of how much longer they have to work. Exactly. Unless, unless, of course, you work out in the hot sun busting bricks, then... Well, then, yeah. yeah, there's that, obviously. But even then, it's like... No one deserves to do that longer than four straight hours. Right, you don't need... Ex- it's dangerous. <laughs> right. <laughs> Truly. Wow. Right. Well, um, so try to try to bargain for that, Tom. Ask them for the 4x4. Four four. Everybody looks at you like, what the fuck is he talking about? I want the 4x4, four four. yeah. I want, it's four sets by four reps <laughs> with the heavy, with the, with the barbells, the big lifts. But also, it's our work week now. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And I'm headed up to Detroit for the launch of Means TV. Oh, I've been meaning to um, plug that. So Means TV is launched, and well, I guess not officially yet, but they're about to. By the time this airs, Means TV will be launched. Okay. They're launching on the 26th, next Wednesday, 2-26-2020. Means TV is out there. You need to sign up, cancel your fucking Netflix account if you have to. And make sure that you are getting uh, the streaming platform of the Rev of Fucking Lucian. Yeah. The only anti-capitalist streaming platform. Available iPhone, Android, Roku, Fire TV, Apple TV. Um, you can get it on all your fucking devices. Yeah. And it and so it's structured and looks a lot like, like the browser itself or the website itself looks a lot like Netflix, so... Um, go yeah, check out. Familiar. Yeah, go check out our, our friends at Means TV. Um, I I will be traveling for uh, a wedding, so that's also exciting. Back to the land of Buffalo. My favorite, honestly, I fucking love Buffalo. I love. Buffalo. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to travel there for my new job, some because that's one of our uh, like funding locations is Buffalo, New York. Um, I'm excited to visit. There's a um, season of the bitch uh, up there. Yes, there is. Oh. Um, my favorite, oh, wow. my favorite uh, sort of. So you know, we talk a lot about revitalization and gentrification on this show. Um, one of my favorite examples of that that I've ever seen is in Buffalo, they took an insane asylum and turned it into a, bo- a boutique hotel. A literal insane asylum, bars on the windows and all, and, tur- can't make it up. and turned it into a boutique hotel. God <laughs> damn. Amazing. Uh, Buffalo's, Buffalo's so great. I love it. It's just, it's just like Eastern Kentucky. I fucking love it. Um, anyways... Um, so check us out on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, and um, we'll see you in the funny papers, I guess. Bye. See you later. See you out there.